join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. I know we got it wrong. I know we made a mistake. And for that, I'm sorry, and I sincerely apologize. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. It is not often you hear the words, I'm sorry, from a politician, let alone the Premier of Ontario. A very emotional Doug Ford apologized for the restrictions he implemented two weekends ago, some of which he then rolled back, admitting he'd got it wrong. We'll talk about that apology. Also, health communications researcher Dr. Heidi Torek joins the pod to talk pandemic communications and guidance for the partially vaccinated. It's Tuesday, April 27th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, when we gathered in this space a week ago, it was to discuss maybe the most extraordinary 180 I think I've ever seen a government do in such a short space of time. Um, Think policing and playgrounds, if listeners want to know what we're referring to. This past week, another extraordinary development, an emotional apology from Premier Doug Ford, followed by an acknowledgement that Ontario may have to bring in paid sick days, a new plan, after all, after months of rejecting the idea. Why do you think the government may be changing its mind on this issue? You know, for months now, various uh, public officers, various uh, health officials, uh, as well as opposition parties and (laughs) mayors and city councils and newspapers um, have all been advocating for uh, some kind of paid uh, sick days measure. People may recall that this government inherited a law that said that employers had to provide, I believe, that it was two paid sick days. Uh, the Tories uh, removed that provision of uh, Ontario employment law when they took power. Uh, the NDP and Liberals uh, have both introduced private members' bills uh, in the legislature to amend the Employment Standards Act to provide for paid sick leave. But for uh, almost all of the past year, uh, the Ontario government has pointed to the federally uh, created and federally funded uh, Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, uh, which is a federal program you can apply for if you get sick with COVID-19 and need to take time off. But there have been numerous criticisms of the program. Uh, You have to apply for it after the fact. It's not uh, automatic the way a a provision of provincial employment legislation would be. Uh, And it takes time to get the money. And uh, in the Ontario context, anyway, um, it actually pays less than a full-time worker would make earning the minimum wage uh, in this province. So, you know, why did the premier and why did the government change its mind now? Uh, Well, (laughs) the official explanation uh, is that they were waiting on the federal budget, uh, which was, of course, presented uh, last week. And they were hoping that the feds would improve the uh, CRSB that they administer, uh, would make, you know, tweaks to it, make it more generous, make it uh, flow faster. But when the budget came out, there was uh, no real improvement to the program. Uh, and the, uh, the government's stated position is that, uh, if the feds are not going to improve the program, then Ontario is going to step in to, you know, as they say, fill the gaps. You say stated position, which makes me think that, um, well, how reasonable or likely do you think that explanation is? I would need a very powerful microscope (laughs) to find the um, almost imperceptible chances that the government's official explanation is the true one. Um, Look, you can't separate politics from politics. And I think the most obvious explanation for the government's about face here is, 
you know, after the events of the past, uh, especially the past two weeks, but frankly, the past two months, the political crisis that the government has found itself in has made them uh, retreat on this issue of paid sick leave uh, in the hopes that they can mollify some of their critics. Um, But this is a tough position they're in because they still don't really want to do it. They still don't want to make a program that's more generous than it needs to be. Uh, We're talking about billions of dollars that uh, they would prefer that they not have to spend. Uh, So they are caught between you know, just based on their own past actions, having being forced to do something that they don't really want to do at the same time as they're up against trying to satisfy criticisms from the New Democrats, the Liberals, and the uh, Green leader, Mike Schreiner. Uh, I, I don't know how they square that circle. And uh, it is worth telling our listeners in this context that on Monday, uh, after question period, uh, the government voted against Liberal MPP Michael Cotto's private member's bill uh, that would have given workers uh, paid sick leave. Uh, This comes after, you know, many weeks of stating publicly that they were going to vote against it. Uh, The government is, um, I would say it's pretty clear right now that they are working on uh, some measure, some bill, some program that they can call their own. Uh, They just haven't presented it yet. And it seems pretty clear that they don't want to share any credit with the opposition parties. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing we do know at this stage is that the government's popularity has taken a big hit because of the events of the past few weeks. And at the risk of inundating people with numbers, which we always say we're not going to do, but I am going to do right now because this really is really quite striking. Let's just follow the progress of Premier Ford's popularity over the past 13 months or so. So we're going to go back to start at March of 2020. No pandemic yet. 61% of Ontarians disapprove of Ford, only 23% approve. That is a minus 38 approval rating. Minus 38. Pretty bad. But then the pandemic hits, and two months later, the pollsters are back in the field. It's May 2020 now, and 46% approve of Ford, only 25% disapprove. That is a plus 21 approval rating. Now, that is a massive, in two months' time, a massive 59-point change in Ford's political fortunes. That is really astonishing in politics. Sometimes you've got to wait. Well, sometimes those kinds of changes never happen. But if they do, (laughs) sometimes you've got to wait months and months, if not years and years, for them to happen. As we know, things have gotten tougher again for the Premier more lately. And now his approval rating is 28%. His disapproval rating is 46%. So he's 18 points underwater today. JMM, these wild swings in popularity remind us that what goes up can come down, but it can also go up again. And we should be careful about writing this premier's political obituary too early. Exactly. The election is far enough away that I don't think anybody should be super confident about what these numbers are telling us. Uh, But it is also interesting that these numbers do seem to show growing support for uh, the Liberals in particular. Uh, We have an innovative research group poll uh, that shows the Liberals in first uh, with 30% support, uh, the PCs in second with 26%, and the New Democrats in third with 23%. Uh, I think that's the first poll out of the last five we've seen in the last few months that doesn't have the uh, progressive conservatives in first place. So, you know, if you're on the the blue team, this is disconcerting. 
And on the question of who'd make the best premier, uh, Ford is still number one, but his numbers have dropped. He's at 24%. Uh, Andrew Horvath of the NDP is second at 21%. Uh, Stephen Del Duca of the Liberals is at 14%. Uh, Mike Schreiner of the Greens is just at five. Um, as is not uncommon for polls like this, uh, the biggest number is none of the above or I don't know, uh, which is 34%. Um, one interesting point uh, that I'll add about that innovative poll, uh, Stephen Del Duca has the second highest number of people saying they don't know or have no opinion about him personally. Uh, the highest was Mike Schreiner of the Green Party. So at the moment, you've got the liberals doing relatively well as a party, but the, the, the liberal brand is still reasonably strong, uh, but people don't have their minds made up about Stephen Del Duca personally. So at the, the risk of prognosticating here, <laughs> um, you know, that says to me this could still go a lot of different ways. Uh, Del Duca, in theory, uh, still has room to grow his support, potentially, uh, or you know, and we've seen this happen before, um, his popularity could really suffer under what we can only assume will be a barrage of attack ads coming from uh, the PC party in the next election. Well, we know those are on the way for sure. And uh, I, I always like to tell the story when people assume they know how things will turn out 13 months ahead of time. Uh, I do remember in January of 1985 that only 10% of Ontarians could identify who the leader of the opposition was then. His name was David Peterson. Six months later, he was the premier of the province. Right. <laughs> so, you know, um, campaigns tend to clarify a lot of things that people think they know but don't. Now, let me raise one more issue before we go to the interview that you've got teed up, and that is both Doug Ford and the Quebec premier, Francois Legault, signed a letter to the prime minister of the country asking him to further restrict international flights into Ontario and Quebec. And then, surprise, surprise, he said with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek, a few days later, the Ontario PC party sent out an e-blast pointing out how hard Ford has been trying to get Justin Trudeau to impose tougher restrictions at the borders. But the federal initiatives have, in Ford's view, just been too little too late. It's time the e-blast says that the federal government does its job and protects our borders. And then they ask you to sign a petition and let Doug know you support stronger measures at the borders. And it's signed, actually, Prabhmeet Sarkaria, who's the MPP for Brampton South and a cabinet minister. Now, a couple of things here, JMM. Number one, we can be almost 100% sure Minister Sarkaria had nothing whatsoever to do with this, even though his signature is on it. This obviously came from Party HQ, probably the fundraising wing. And two, what do we think of this oldest play in the playbook, namely... When things are tough at Queen's Park, find some issue you can blame the feds about and try to change the channel. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> there's a historical record here. Um, as recently as December, uh, the premier was talking about lowering the barriers for flyers coming into Pearson. Uh, he wanted to lower the 14th day uh, self-isolation period for travelers to 10 days with the use of rapid testing. Now, obviously, I think it's fair to say that things were different in December than they are now, uh, but... My point is that the province and the feds uh, have always been very uh, leery about uh, closing flights, closing air travel. Um, there are real harms and costs that come from restricting uh, international travel and uh, both levels of government uh, until <laughs> a few weeks ago uh, were being very cautious about uh, any additional measures. Um, and 
now, all of a sudden, with the provincial government taking fire on its sort of pandemic handling generally, uh, they have turned up the volume on this uh, particular criticism of the federal government. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the government, uh, the Ford government, that is, um, bears the burden of proof here. I mean, you need to show that this isn't opportunism or deflection. There is at least um, some small measure of consensus here because the feds did actually implement some restrictions on uh, direct flights from India and Pakistan uh, last week uh, in response to criticism from the provinces, the official opposition in Ottawa uh, and wider media. So, you know, we'll see if that goes any further. That is fair to point out, as I think it is equally fair to point out that whoever signs up and sends their emails in to sign that petition and show them how upset you are with the federal government, that in the days ahead, you're going to be receiving another email from the fundraising wing of the Provincial Progressive Conservative Party to see if, I think the language is always, give five bucks if you agree with Doug, or send ten bucks if you agree with yeah. Doug. Anyways. Kind yeah, of a- I... Um I, I try very hard not to give my email out to anybody who uh, I, I don't absolutely have to. And still, uh, the PC party has managed to find three separate email addresses for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's set up this next interview with this question. How would you describe the communication strategy coming out of the premier's office these days? Uh, <laughs> what's that line from Apocalypse Now? Uh, I don't see any method at all, sir. <laughs> Um, I think chaotic would be a fair description. Uh, So I wanted to talk with an expert about how Ontario might change its strategy. Uh, People who have been listening to the podcast since last September might recognize Dr. Heidi Torek's name. Uh, She is a health communications researcher and associate professor at the University of British Columbia. And she was on the podcast last year talking about how Ontario could improve its pandemic communications. Given the events of the last few weeks, it felt like an appropriate time to have her back. So here is my interview with Dr. Heidi Torek. Heidi Torek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And I should say properly, welcome back to the podcast. We don't have that many repeat guests. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, this is an instance where we need to do a repeat, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Um, you are based in BC, but you have been keeping an eye on things here in Ontario. We've been uh, trying to keep it lively for people outside of the province. Um, what do you make of the province's news conference the other week where they announced they were closing outdoor activities, uh, playgrounds, and uh, giving police new enforcement powers? It was honestly a tremendous shame to see for a whole host of reasons, including that we now have over a year of evidence on how COVID is transmitted, what are the the safer ways that that we can still have uh, some enjoyment in our lives. And I had just co-written with two infectious diseases uh, specialists, Zane Chagla and Suman Chakrabarti, the Monday before a piece in the Toronto Star about how we need to change the narrative about outdoors transmission. Nobody says it's 100% safe, but it's eminently safer than indoor gatherings. And so it was a tremendous shame and, and frustration for me to see four days later that the province shutting down those kinds of things. And then on top of that, not really addressing some of the major points that um, infectious diseases specialists and even more local medical health officers had been bringing up as the key place of transmission, particularly workplaces. The workplace thing, I think, is is really key that um, it, it was, you know, the dog that didn't bark in that announcement. But um, I, I do want to talk about outdoor transmission here. Um, 
you have written and, as you say, numerous other studies uh, have shown that uh, outdoors is is so much safer. It's sort of like the ultimate well-ventilated space and uh, it can be very uh, low risk. So, I mean, in your mind, why, uh, despite this uh, year of experience, as you say, why do we keep seeing people uh, effectively say that, you know, outdoor gatherings are risky or that outdoor, uh, uh, you know, even even congregating outdoors, uh, people are, I think, overstating the risks. I think there's a couple of reasons. One is the fact that what we do outdoors is simply more visible. And so when we see cases going up, people see someone outside and they think it must be spreading from there, even though we know from the data that it isn't. Uh, the second aspect is the unfortunate uh, policy by anecdote, which is something that, that we saw from Doug Ford himself, who said that he had driven past a bunch of people who were outside. And that was part of what informed his decision to shut down outdoor spaces. And I think the third aspect of it has been the representation in the media, where we have seen consistently since last summer the use of photos of people gathering outside as a way to illustrate articles about COVID-19 and transmission. So often when you read the text of the article, it will actually say the diametric opposite of what the pictures are saying. So it will say something about how outdoors is safer than indoors and you look at what the photo is and it's a telephoto lens of people gathering on a beach which makes it seem like they're gathered close together. So I think a combination of, of those three things has led to this continued impression that we need to control outdoor spaces in a way that the science frankly doesn't support. Uh, when you were on the podcast back in uh, September, uh, one of the things you said uh, that really doesn't work is shaming, publicly shaming people or even privately shaming them. Um, but we still see that language and and you see it about people congregating in parks, right? Um, or for that matter, people going to work sick. Why does shaming not work <laughs> as a remedial lesson? <laughs> So there are a whole host of reasons why shaming doesn't work. Uh, one is that it may fundamentally discourage that group of people who is being shamed from going to get tested because they worry that if they do have COVID, then they'll be shamed for it. Secondly, it could prevent them from wanting to participate in things like contact tracing, again, because they fear being blamed in some way. And then thirdly, if we want to think about what makes for a, an inclusive sort of community response, singling out particular groups and then Blaming them is not a way to, to maintain and, and build rapport. And maybe the final thing I'll say is that what we've often seen in these kinds of shamings is that they fundamentally misrepresent how transmission is happening. And I'd say this is not just an Ontario problem. Um, it's also been a, a BC problem a few weeks ago that the Premier John Horgan said to people between the ages of 20 and 39, quote, don't blow this for us implying that the reason there were cases in that age group was that there were lots of indoor parties and so on, but we didn't really have the data necessarily to support that. And so this created a huge amount of resentment from people in that age group, many of whom were losing their jobs as indoor dining and restaurants was shut down. So that really doesn't make for uh, a way in which we can actually understand, okay, this is how transmission is happening. This is why there's a lot of transmission within this group. And then we come up with policies to suggest it. Instead, it, it descends into a bit of a mudslinging battle. What strategies instead of uh, shaming, which I think we desperately need to be looking uh, away from, uh, instead of shaming, what should uh, politicians and public health officials uh, be using instead? Right. So I think what we've seen in a lot of places where there's been effective communications is we need trust and rapport building with the public. We need honesty about where things could be going. We need clarity about what is uncertain 
and what are the sorts of things that then are going to be addressed. So let's say there's some uncertainty about where transmission is happening, acknowledging that uncertainty, and then saying, here are the steps that are going to be taken in order to address that. So that kind of rapport building means that people may feel, okay, look, we're going to hang on with these guidelines. We think that they're reasonable. We understand that they're science-driven. And that's going to mean that, that we're actually going to adhere to them because they make sense to us. So that kind of rapport building so that people trust you when you have to come out with new guidelines, if indeed you do, is tremendously important. And I think it also matters even looking forwards or at this moment for the vaccines as well, so that when there are changing guidelines on those vaccines, that you trust the public health officials and politicians who are telling you that something is safe for you. And if there is no rapport between your public and the politicians or health officials giving you those guidelines, it's really potentially going to undermine vaccine confidence as well. You know, Ontario is uh, on track to vaccinate about 40% of its uh, adult population by the end of April. Uh, as we record this, about a quarter of the people in this province are partially vaccinated. But there's no real um, clear guidance from public health officials yet uh, about what people who have one but not both of their shots uh, should be doing or should not be doing. And, you know, I don't know if you necessarily want to, to speak about the, um, the, the, the specifics of uh, what public health guidance should or shouldn't be, but do you have any thoughts on how this should be communicated to people? It's a great question. There's obviously a lot of unknowns about what one vaccine will do. We're starting to see much, much more data coming out about specifically what, what it means when you're fully vaccinated. But I think here there are a couple of things that, that we can think about. Um, one is what uh, an American epidemiologist, Michael Osterholm, has called winnable moments. So how do you motivate people to get vaccinated? It's because in part, they know that, that things at some point afterwards will change. They'll have winnable moments, you know, grandparents hugging their grandkids, that kind of stuff that, that we're seeing in some places in the US. So I think that's one thing to bear in mind. It's a, a motivating tool. The other is, as I said, to think about how do you at least tell people you're working on this, help people to understand that you may not have the answer right now, but it is something that's in the hopper that you are in fact working on and that you will come out with a plan and guidelines at a certain point in the future. I think that can also be tremendously helpful because otherwise people have a sense that they've gotten the vaccine. Of course, they're happy because they get a sense at some point restrictions are going to be lifted, but you do want some sort of short-term sense of what might change for you. And, and those kinds of planability guidelines, I think has been something that, that has been lacking for all of us in this pandemic. I'm, I'm a human being who loves to plan. So I've just had to let go of that side of my personality. And I know that's true for a huge number of people. So anything we can do to just give people a little bit more of a sense of this is at least when we'll have guidelines. And this is when you might be able to do more things that can just help us to, to I think, have a little bit less anxiety that suddenly tomorrow things are going to change again. Now, the Premier, Doug Ford, he gave this um, tearful apology and he uh, is you know, currently in self-isolation uh, and he, he gave this apology outside his home, uh, but his party's poll numbers have taken a pretty substantial hit in recent weeks. Uh, there seems to be, I think it's fair to say, a, a general feeling that the government um, has lost at least some of the trust that it had at the beginning of the pandemic. 
Is it possible for a government like this to bring people back uh, and, and buy into public health measures that, you know, could still be necessary at this point in the pandemic? Uh, is it possible to, to bring them back once you've lost that trust? It's a great question. I mean, the number one way you're going to be able to bring people back is by showing evidence that you are listening to your scientific advisors and you are taking on board what they recommend and you are addressing that as quickly as possible. An apology has meaning when it does a couple of things. One, it's sincere. And two, it makes sense in terms of what you're apologizing for. And three, there are very concrete steps on what you're going to do to rectify the thing that went wrong. And particularly step three is where I think we could see a couple of really helpful things. One is, of course, listening to the, the scientific advisors, um, including on workplace transmission, on where vaccines are being sent, and so on and so forth. Um, a second would also be transparency, because there are all sorts of questions around the selection of those vaccination hotspots. And those sorts of things, I think, can make a tremendous difference if the public has a sense that this is really a science-driven and reactive response, where a government is learning from its previous mistakes and really turning things around, then you can increase the amount of trust in guidelines. But at this moment, we're not seeing that third component of the apology that I think could potentially increase trust. You know, the last question I wanted to ask, and, and this is more of a, a comparative question, uh, when we spoke in September, I think the um, really national consensus was that uh, your, uh, rather BC's uh, Chief Medical Officer, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, was really one of the, the nation leaders uh, in terms of the clarity and the empathy of her uh, public health communications. And uh, she got a lot of credit for BC's conduct in uh, the first wave of the pandemic. And uh, I, I guess uh, I'm curious how you think uh, that has held up. Obviously, you mentioned uh, John Horgan, um, you know, saying to young people, don't blow this for us. That's not exactly, I think, um, a Bonnie Henry approved message, maybe. Um, but uh, I, I just wonder how you think that um, assessment from earlier in the pandemic has held up in BC. Mm. I think that we've seen certainly some questions arise over that and, and some of the perhaps weaknesses in the, in the BC communications that were there from the start become more important as time went on. Uh, one of those is the question of the level of data transparency, which of course as children went back to school became uh, more and more of a question. Another was the, the use of social media and how far this message was really meeting the whole of the province uh, where it was at, perhaps in particular uh, young people, and there's been more social media, but maybe not as much as, as one might have wanted. And then I think, of course, you know, the, the second and third waves have raised questions about the rapidity of uh, response and has created a lot of uh, resentment around that, which is, of course, uh, perhaps partially a political question that, that we may know more about as, as time goes on. So I think there's still a lot of respect for, for Bonnie Henry, but some of those questions around data transparency, uh, reaching the entirety of uh, the BC population, and whether there could have been a little bit more of a rapid reaction to prevent, um, in particular, this third wave getting so bad that in nine hospitals in the lower mainland now, non-essential surgeries are postponed or cancelled for the next two weeks. That was Heidi Torek, health communications researcher and associate professor at the University of British Columbia. Now, JMM, I know we're about to do our quotes of the week, but I thought I'd sneak one unofficial quote in here first. During COVID times, we are always on the lookout for kids or pets or spouses, somebody who's making an unscheduled cameo appearance. 
uh, during a press conference. And it happened to Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca last week as he was trying to make a serious point about the government's record on this pandemic. Have a listen and see if you can hear who's making a cameo in this Q&A with yours truly. And this notion of pointing the finger of blame at a different level of government or someone else is completely consistent with how misplaced Doug Ford's approach to the pandemic has been all the way through. This is not my official follow-up, but what's the dog's name? <laughs> that was Sammy, our eight-month-old yellow lab. Sammy, okay. My official follow-up. There's liberal leader Stephen Del Duca and his dog, Sammy. Now, as promised, we conclude this podcast with our other favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or any other social media platform for that matter. Twitter, Facebook, whatever you like, help suggest ways to make this show a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We got a nice note a few weeks ago from a listener that we wanted to share. They wrote, Just a little special thank you to Steve Pakin for his sidebar about getting his AstraZeneca shot. His access was certainly easier than mine has been, but it was him quoting the pharmacist about how few people had signed up that spurred me to sign up. I'm not vaccine hesitant, but I am able to live a highly quarantined life, and I thought I would let all the over 60s who believe they need to be at the front of the line go ahead of me. Thanks for the warning about the day after the shot. <laughs> yes, the day after was, uh, boy, I was down for the count there, but that's probably got to be the only occasion in my nearly 40 years in this business where I actually said something and it resulted in somebody else taking an actual action. Uh, be, be careful here. I'm on a, I'm on a roll. <laughs> it's a good one, though. <laughs> yeah, I, let's hope so. Let's hope. Anyway, here now is my quote of the week, and we're going to go back to Doug Ford's extraordinary news conference where he was choking back the tears and apologizing to Ontarians for, in his words, getting it wrong. My friends, through this entire pandemic... I've tried to be the calming voice, to offer you hope and certainty. Maybe I haven't always lived up to that, but I've always done my best. And let me say that the greatest honor of my life was to be elected to be your premier. I work for you, my boss is you, the people of Ontario. That's part of Premier Doug Ford's apology from last week. And my quote of the week comes from question period on Monday. Uh, New Democrat MPP Gratan Singh, who represents the riding of Brampton East, was grilling the government about the resources that have been provided to uh, one of the hardest hit parts of the province. And he brought up the case of Emily Viegas, a 13-year-old who died of COVID-19 last week. Here's what Singh had to say about the terrible dilemma Emily's father, Carlos, faced. He knew that Brampton Civic was one of the worst hit hospitals in our entire country with COVID-19. And he was afraid that if Emily went there, she'd be sent to a hospital outside of Brampton and be separated from both her parents. So he did his best to take care of her. And he did his best to take care of her. And he, he thought that Emily would get better soon. The next day, Emily Victoria Vigas became one of the youngest Canadians to die from COVID-19. How many more deaths will it take before the Conservative government give Brampton the support we need to fight COVID-19. That's MPP Gurutan Singh speaking during question period. On Monday, the legislature observed a moment of silence in honor of Emily Victoria Viegas, who was one of the youngest people in Canada killed by COVID-19. And that was episode 109 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive.
Test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>